Hey everybody, Emily Shields here, welcoming you to another special bonus episode of the Compact Nation podcast. This one's a little bit different because we're sharing audio with you from another podcast. My co-host and National Campus Compact President Andrew Seligson was interviewed on a podcast called Socrates Cafe. He talks a little bit about how we might form a compact as a nation with each other to make our lives better, similar to the way that our nation was originally founded. He's going to talk about what that compact might look like and how that might even extend beyond colleges and universities. So we hope you'll listen and enjoy. As always, you can reach out to us on social media, hashtag CompactNationPod, or email podcast at compact.org, and make sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes so more people find their way to us and the great work that is happening in higher ed community engagement. Otherwise, we will see you next time on the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you. The philosopher Socrates of 5th century BC Athens believed that the unexamined life wasn't worth living. One might spin that the other way and say that he felt the examined life was indeed worth living. But what kind of examined life? One with a method? One with the ethos of inquiry that required regular and continual encounter with others as a way of expanding our vistas and horizons for who we might be? and who we might still become, uh, however much time we have left in every age and stage of life. This is Chris Phillips, founder of Socrates Cafe. Uh, We have hundreds of groups around the globe, from Mumbai to Maine to Minneapolis to Melbourne. If you want to know more about our groups and where they are, just go to our website at www.socratescafe.com. Our latest initiative is our Socrates Cafe podcast. These are inquiries that help us further fill out the pieces of the human puzzle. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Seligson, who is the president of the Campus Compact. And the campus, and welcome to our podcast, Dr. Seligson. Thank you so much. So you're just you're just the fifth president of Campus Compact, which was founded over 30 years ago, and it's all about getting today's college and university students, if I understand it correctly, really involved in a, in a life of service, of, of, of community, not, not just in their college years, but in a way that inspires them to continue beyond that? Yeah, I would say, so it's about that and more, I would say. You know, we really, uh, so just to give a little background, we are a coalition of more than a thousand colleges and universities nationally. We're organized as a network of 34 state and regional compacts across the country. And our members are committed to the public purposes of higher education. So part of that is preparing students for lives of engaged citizenship in all its dimensions. But there's also a piece that's about, you know, leveraging the capacity of higher education for the public good. So connecting colleges and universities through partnerships to communities, both local and global, to advance a whole set of goods connected to health and education and economic development. So students we see as a key part of that because cultivating their citizenship capacities is incredibly important, but it's it's a broader commitment on the part of our members. Wow, that is a tall, tall order. How Can you give me just an example of how, how you go about that, achieve, realizing that? 
Yeah, so we we do a lot of things uh, that are kind of all pushing in that direction. So nat- from our national office, which is where I'm sitting here in Boston, we uh, create resources for colleges and universities. So we publish books. We have a whole trove of web resources like syllabus collections and toolkits and other forms of guidance that institutions can use to learn how to build partnerships, how to create curricula, how to structure programs for students and to support community-based research, for example. Mm-hmm. We uh, convene people. We you know, run conferences and institutes and other things where people can come together to learn. We have a student fellowship program called the Newman Civic Fellowship. So, for example, last week we actually named the 2017 class 273 new fellows from across the country who will be connected to us for a year of building their own civic skills and capacities, as well as connecting with each other to form a network of engaged student civic leaders. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, a lot of different things we do to get people thinking and working together and acting. And then our our state and regional compacts really connect with institutions on the ground to help build local and regional collaborations, partnerships, to help train faculty and train staff to do this work effectively. So we, we, we essentially are opportunistic in seeing, you know, what is it that we could do that would help advance this work and enable our member institutions to advance their public purposes? That's incredibly admirable. Um, I, as you know, I had a, my, one of my previous guests was John Alger, who's the president of James Madison University. And I know that he, he and I are, have known each other for a number of years now. You, you, you both seem to share this real commitment that, that part of this needs to, uh, a, a critical component is, is open dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, you know, there's, there's a number of ways in which that's true. So as you mentioned, John Alger is a, a great uh, advocate and practitioner of this work, and he actually is a member of our board. And, you know, I think JMU is a great example of the the sort of ethos and the sort of work that we envision. And so I think open dialogue is crucial in a number of ways. One is, you know, I think we are used to the idea of campuses as being places where there's a special commitment to dialogue, uh, freedom of communication, academic freedom, so the development of ideas, however unpopular, and the protection of those. I think one thing that we advocate in particular is that the boundaries of the campus should become more permeable so that that spirit of dialogue and inquiry is inclusive of members of communities beyond the campus, both so that their interests and needs are taken into account in the kinds of discussions that go on on university campuses. Also, because students can learn a lot from hearing the perspectives of people both inside and outside the academy. And I I think there are real opportunities when we extend those boundaries. It also means being thoughtful about, you know, what what are the practices and conventions of academia that might exclude people Mm -hmm. who are not academics from participation in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And another element of this, I mean, it's, I mean, I I pay a lot of, um, I I would not ever want to call it lip service to this notion of um, really being open to a variety of perspectives. Uh, that are quite unlike my own, quite alien to to me quite often. But um, 
it does seem to me that a number of 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 campus environments are are not um, quite so open to having speakers, for instance, whose whose views they find objectionable. When when the ideal, at least for me, would be to be even go out of one's way to be even more welcoming to someone who who comes at things quite differently than I do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. That's obviously a, an issue that at the moment uh, is right in the spotlight and I think has been extremely challenging for institutions to manage and the individuals who are part of them. One thing I would say, I mean, I, I certainly myself come down in the end on the side of openness, on the side of uh, the notion that, right, just any idea, regardless of how unpopular, ought to find uh protection for its expression, although not, you know, for the content. But, you know, I also have taken very seriously when I hear, for example, I was having a conversation recently with a a young woman of color who is a recent college graduate. And she said, look, we know because there's a, you know, a significant body of literature that tells us, uh, you know, it's a concept called stereotype threat, that when you speak to members of historically uh, excluded groups uh, who have not had access to higher education, when you invoke uh, various kinds of stereotypes about them and their inability to learn, for example, that it actually has positive harm. It makes it more likely that they will not succeed in college. So she said, if a speaker is coming onto campus with the intention of invoking false, unscientific, unsupported ideas, that are intended to do harm, and we know from research that's been done that it will do harm, why should that idea be protected? Why should we give the imprimatur of the university uh, to the expression of an idea like that? When, again, the, the idea is not to actually engage in serious dialogue because these ideas have been discredited, but rather simply to provoke responses. So I take that perspective seriously. I mean, I think in the end, Drawing the distinctions and trying to say what is permissible to express and what is not is a road that we can't really go down in the end. But I do think uh, that it's not um, it's not a sort of petty unseriousness or unwillingness to listen to others that is motivating some of this response. It's the fact that people do practical harm to each other sometimes through words. And right now we do seem to have an uptick in the occurrences of people intentionally doing harm to each other through words. So I think while we should protect the space for the expression of ideas, it does mean we also have an obligation to try to get at what's going on such that we see that uptick and what we can do collectively to try to, you know, change the dynamics of, of dialogue and of, uh, in some cases of sort of attack and harm on our campuses and in our communities. I mean, one of the things that I find disquieting is when somebody can give a talk that's based on views that have been discredited, but there's no real opportunity for inquiry, give and take with the group, so that we, there's no opportunity then and there to, to discredit the person if the person deserves discrediting. There's um, just sort of, he has this platform or bully pulpit, to just speak, and then maybe at the end somebody can attempt to do something in a question and answer session. But that's not the same as in engaging in open dialogue, where we can really scrutinize what speaks for and against any given way of seeing things. 
Yeah, I think, you know, the uh, almost every one of the particular incidents that becomes a story, you know, that shows up in newspapers and on uh, the 24 hour news cycle and social media, th there's always these kind of particular dimensions that complicate what happened or what didn't happen or why it happened the way it did. And it's very hard to uh, kind of sort out all the elements, you know, um, when Milo Yiannopoulos's appearance in Berkeley generated kind of uh, some degree of violent reaction on the streets, it turned out that many of the people involved were not in any way from the university, uh, and but others sort of got lumped in. You know, I think part of what happened at Middlebury when Charles Murray was scheduled to speak, uh, you know, involved the fact that, as you're pointing out, the kind of the people who would have expertise in critiquing his point of view were not actually people included in the event. Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, people using physical force to prevent other people from expressing their ideas. Uh, that's just wrong, and there's no defense of it. But I think the point you're making that we are not particularly good at structuring environments where these ideas, when somebody wants to bring them onto campus, where we structure a dialogue that would enable us to dig deeply into them. And that's partly because very often the people doing the inviting are not actually seeking to advance learning. They are seeking to either generate a negative response that they think will help them through the publicity, or they're simply expressing anger at other people and doing it by bringing ideas they know, uh, you know, that they will find offensive in, into the community. So I, I think, you know, we often... Right. It, it's hard to get these moments where we can structure the dialogues. There are some really promising practices around the country for efforts that are about digging deep into different perspectives. You know, I'm thinking of um, at the University of Michigan, they've generated uh, this specific model for intergroup dialogue. And, you know, I think it's been extremely powerful in allowing uh, students and now they're actually sort of transforming it into a, a model or adding a dimension such that it can be used for faculty groups and others uh, across uh, specific lines of difference to really explore deeply their own experiences, their own views about the world. Um, there, there are others, there's sustained dialogue, which does something a little bit different, but also engages in students in dialogue over time on complex issues. So I think there are some models for this, but the most well-publicized events are usually the ones that were least well-structured to begin with, or again, weren't intention, intended to be structured, you know, to support dialogue at all. You, for all of those who are connected with Campus Compact and this incredible network, uh, Matrices of Connection, is the, is the idea is for everyone involved to make a commitment to um, leverage human and intellectual resources, as you wrote, for the public good, to being committed to creating and, and cultivating positive social goods. And you, and you wrote about uh, this, a civic action plan that seems geared towards realizing that. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, that's really kind of baked into our history right from, you know, the, the name of the organization, a, you know, a compact, a sort of coming together in agreement of people. And that originally signified the college and university presidents who both formed Campus Compact and then joined it. And it was a compact among them to ensure that higher education was maximally advancing 
especially the strength and health of democracy, but also the commitment to communities that makes democracy sustainable over time. Mm -hmm. And we have, I think, kind of broadened out the concept. So the presidents and chancellors who are members are crucial to that. But I think we imagine this compact as uh, encompassing all of those who make this commitment, whether faculty, staff and administrators, and, and importantly, students, to using higher education and the resources that are embedded in it to advance greater goods. And as you said, we, as part of our 30th anniversary events last year, we came together as a network and developed a document we call the 30th Anniversary Action Statement. And you can find it at compact.org slash action statement. And it's a restatement of some of the fundamental principles uh, and application of those principles to our particular moment now, 30 years after the founding of Campus Compact. And there's a practical commitment embedded in it as well, so that when presidents and chancellors sign on to that action statement, they are committing to the development of a campus civic action plan, essentially telling the world how their institution will realize these principles, these commitments to the public good, to equity, to partnerships, uh, how they'll realize all those principles in their own institutional context. And so we've actually been working with campuses over the last year as more and more, we've now had about 450 institutions who've signed the action statement. And we then have been creating resources and convenings, et cetera, to help campuses think about how do we build a, a campus civic action plan that will really deepen and advance our positive impact, both on the development of students as citizens and also on communities more broadly. You know, this notion of compact, and it's something that I wrote about in, in, in a book of, of my called Constitution Cafe, a lot of folks don't realize that our nation, or, or in, you know, in its origins, um, precursor to our nation, there, it was a, based on compacts and covenants. And the, the Mayflower Compact of, of November 1621, which, uh, which was formed at Plymouth Colony. Uh, I was thinking of my fellow Virginian George Mason's draft of the Virginia Bill of Rights. And it, it goes, all men are by nature equally free and independent, have certain inherent rights of which when they enter into a state of society, they cannot by any compact deprive or de divest their posterity, namely in the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. And I... So I, I, your the campus compact to me harks back to that notion. Would would you do you find that a sort of in line? Absolutely. You know, I I mean, as I said, we're sitting here in Boston, yes. so I'm a couple blocks from where John Winthrop is buried. Wow. And you know, it's it's hard not to feel the <laughs> resonances of that from from the Mayflower Compact forward. And I you know I'm struck by a couple of things about that. So one is you know. The Mayflower Compact, right, created by these folks Man. on a ship yeah. about to, you know, come onto land. They were in tough circumstances. They had landed in the wrong place, so they thought they would be within an existing political, uh, you know, uh, jurisdiction called Virginia, and they had, you know, they, they didn't end up there. <laughs> and so they knew that they needed to make some agreement about how they would govern themselves in order to move forward. So literally before they set foot on land, they, they put down on paper that kind of agreement. 
And, you know, I think of the Declaration of Independence and the, the line that always resonates with me is, you know, at the end where they uh, pledge their lives, their fortunes and their sacred honors. Mm-hmm. So, again, these were people recognizing that they were about to they were essentially in signing on committing to an undertaking mm-hmm. that was going to end in one of two ways. Right. Mm-hmm. Either they were going to be a free set of free and independent states or they were uh, going to be executed. I don't think there was any middle ground given what they were doing. And so, you know, these are agreements made among people under very challenging circumstances, recognizing that under those circumstances, really nothing other than a commitment to each other will carry them through. And, you know, I don't want to uh, overstate the, the, the conditions that led to the founding of our compact. They certainly were not as dire and existential as those, you know, of those, those previous historical compacts. But I do think, you know, there was a recognition among the first four people who came together to form Campus Compact. It was at the time the presidents of Brown, Stanford, Georgetown, and the Education Commission of the States. And then within a year, there were about 100 presidents who had joined them. There was, I think, really a sense that American democracy was at risk. And that the the capacity and inclination to think together about the common good and to be willing to compromise in individual acquisition for greater goods, that, that those things were in decline or at, at least that we weren't doing enough to cultivate those capacities. They also believed, I think quite rightly, that many positive actions that college students in particular were taking were just not registering publicly. And so they thought that bringing out the good that was going on while also making a commitment to deepen that work was a way to reverse what they feared about uh, sort of the the country's democratic future. And so again, you know, there was a sense that there, you know, these were obviously leaders of uh, the, the initial group, very strong institutions that could do an awful lot on their own. Mm-hmm. But they also recognized that what they wanted to do and what they believed higher education should be doing for the country, that they could not do alone. They could only do in combination with each other. And so I'm wondering, this notion of a camp compact and coming together in agreement at a time when... There is so much rampant polarization, characterization of those who differ with us as the other, and and far worse words than that. Um, How can we take the incredibly admirable work that uh, Campus Compact has undertaken now and been committed to for such a long time, and how can we extrapolate from that uh, as as Americans? So it's really, this notion of compact is really multi-directional, and we all feel like we're vested stakeholders again in this thing called democracy. Yeah, that's, that is a challenging (laughs) question. Uh, I mean, I do think there are certain things that academia in doing this work has to offer in that way. And so, you know, I think one is we we need a commitment to the kind of unfettered pursuit of, of truth wherever uh, our best investigations lead. And I think that's something that, you know, academia has never been perfect in that way, and it isn't now, but it does have a long history of taking that idea seriously mm-hmm. and of 
being a space where ideas that may seem strange or uh, that cut against the grain find safety and the possibility of being developed. So I think that ethic of saying we are better off when we, we don't have to believe everything everybody says, but the idea that we make space for ideas that are unfamiliar to us and we listen to the evidence presented and the reasoning supporting them, I think that's something that, you know, that it makes sense for us to think about what kinds of spaces can we cultivate that can kind of rejuvenate that idea more broadly in our culture. Because it, it is uh, inherently a, a nonpartisan idea. Um, and again, I think in, you know, the, the tradition of academia is that actually many ideas that, that kind of now seem somehow associated with one side or another in political disputes emerged as um, just new ideas that somebody had that cut against the grain of whatever their discipline or you know, and, and have come into widespread acceptance. So I think there's there's some uh, almost like a set of ethical uh, and epistemological commitments that we would do well to seek to cultivate more broadly. And I think if we can think about trying to bring people together to look at issues that do not fit neatly into a partisan framework and ask questions about, you know, how can we address these? Uh, in a in a context of sort of respectful inquiry, that that seems like at least a starting point. I guess the other thing I would say from our work that I think is important is, you know, a very important element of the kind of work we support is that it emphasizes experiential learning. So, you know, an experiential learning is what it sounds like, devising ways for students to learn through hands-on practical experiences in the world. So we, you know, we think, and there's a lot of evidence supporting this, that by engaging in practical work to solve problems in communities, to make positive change in communities, students come to understand a whole set of issues much more deeply than they otherwise would. So it's a powerful learning tool, even for the things, just disciplinary knowledge, things you that everybody should learn in college no matter what, but also for the civic learning that colleges have a responsibility to cultivate. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think the idea of saying, what are ways that we can create opportunities for people to work together on practical challenges? Because again, that tends to wash away a little bit the partisan screens. Yes. Uh, and there are many things that I think all of us agree we'd like to see changed. You know, we'd like to see many communities have a kind of economic recovery and thriving opportunity settings for young people. You know, we'd like to see uh, a whole set of health problems addressed, right? The, I mean, there's a ton of focus right now on the opioid epidemic. That has no partisan flavor or, uh, you know, and I think asking people to find ways to work together, it's frankly one of the reasons, so you may know that in the budget proposal that the White House sent to Congress, uh, they essentially asked Congress to eliminate the Corporation for National and Community Service. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, if ever there were a wrong time for that, I mean, I think it would always be the wrong time for that, but this is the, the wrongest time, right? The Corporation for National and Community Service, which uh, you know runs programs like AmeriCorps and Vista and yeah. Senior Corps, this is a way people come together in their communities to address problems and to seize opportunities. And I think we need more opportunities like that so that 
the, you know, people can ask and answer questions together, test out ideas in practice, see what works in advancing shared goals and move forward together. Uh, again, that, you know, so when you ask for me, what, what are some insights or ways we might build? I think those kinds of practical experiments we have discovered can be very, very powerful for students and for community members who participate. And I think multiplying those is really important. Yes, I think the, the, the types of experiential learning and doing that um, Campus Compact foments and supports is at the bedrock of creating a more vibrant, open society. I was thinking of one of my students at Penn who's now uh, in Teach for America, and he's in a poor Latino area in, in south of Dallas, Texas. And he told me just uh, has, he, he now no longer lives in, in a bubble that he is, um, he, he's much more, this type of experiential learning and doing emphasis boundaries and borders. You, you, you just quit even thinking about so much terms of difference and you're just sort of widening your horizons and perspectives and bringing more people into your sort of orbit. I, I totally agree and I also think it, you know, when we're actually faced with trying to make progress on challenging issues in practice, it, it tends to lead us to explore anything that might be a solution with a kind of openness that we might not otherwise do. So if you're sitting in your living room reading the newspaper, watching TV, and you hear about kind of education reform proposals, you may come in with your own inclinations and you kind of like the ones that you already liked. When you are working in a challenged school district, where you see students uh, really facing an environment that makes it extremely difficult for them to learn, you are interested in anything that might change that. And you don't really care whether it comes from somebody who's called a reformer or not, or a conservative or a liberal. So, you know, one of the things, I, I did a lot of work on campuses before I came to my current role at Campus Compact, engaging students uh, in, in many issues, but I spent a lot of time in urban school districts with students you're at and Rutgers Camden, right? I was at Rutgers Camden for a number of years, exactly, and spent a lot of time working with the Camden public schools. And, you know, students who were immersed in that environment are, are Rutgers students, many of whom, you know, came from suburban uh, contexts and were really unfamiliar with what a, a, a challenged urban school district looked like you know, they didn't all walk out believing one thing about what ought to be done. Some thought, you know, we need more charter schools and more experimentation. Some, you know, thought vouchers would be a good idea just to let parents get their kids somewhere else. Others thought, you know, what we need to do is fund these schools adequately and repair the buildings and create decent learning environments and support the very committed teachers who are already there. And those are very different approaches, but it wasn't, it didn't come down on partisan lines or based on pre-existing uh, kind of prejudices. It, this was based on students seeing and then in, you know, in the uh, context of the academic courses they were taking, reading about proposed solutions, looking at the evidence. And from my perspective, again, I don't know exactly what policy proposals these students will ultimately support or craft as they move into those roles themselves, but I'm certain they will approach those conversations with greater sensitivity to the complexity, with a deeper understanding of how the situation looks to students, to parents, 
to professional educators, to others in the community who are paying the taxes that support uh, the school system. And, you know, and again, that's that's what I hope for. But it also implies a notion of something called social conscience, you know, where um, that from my generation, nothing was ever asked of me directly. I never had to register for the draft. I never had to do anything. But um, and many of my peers do support the idea of, of a year or two years of service, and yet many of us never did that ourselves. Is it if we're really going to have a compact that resonates with, with all Americans, does it does it sort of begin with this idea that it's not enough to pay our taxes or try to avoid our taxes, as the case may be, or, or vote or not, but, but that there's far more involved if we're really going to have a, a vibrant, open democracy over the longer haul that we older folks have to set a far greater example for, for the students that we're hoping to exhort? You know, I think the th there's an effort right now uh, led by an organization called Service Year Alliance uh, that is about trying to kind of re recreate a social norm of national service and just a basic expectation that everybody, as they make their way through their early adult years, will spend some time in a service role, whether it's military, civilian, et cetera. And you know, I think there is an awful lot to be said for that. We work closely with Service Here Alliance in, in seeking to cultivate higher education's participation in the development of, of those opportunities. You know, and I, I think there are obviously many of us uh, who did not kind of engage in such a formal, um, like a year or multiple years, have found ways to volunteer and to serve on boards of organizations or run for local office. So there's, I think, lots of ways that one can do it. But I think the notion that, yeah, it is not sustainable to have a democratic society in which some people think that they can kind of sit on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. uh, it just doesn't work. And I think, you know, we have a long history that going back to Tocqueville and uh, his, you know, surprise at the level of kind of associated activity uh, in civil society in the United States and onward, we have a long history of having organizations and uh, opportunities for participation that ordinary people have taken up. And it's been incredibly important to developing and sustaining the kind of free society that we have been. Um, and, you know, there's been debates in recent years over whether that's essentially been in decline, but there is some quite legitimate arguments that, that suggest, you know, Robert Putnam and others that that the best evidence is that, yeah, our associated life has been in decline. And as a consequence, our commitment to and trust in our public institutions has been in decline. And I think we need to reverse that. And I don't think there's any other way other than kind of people who are committed reaching out to others and, and finding ways to work together on local challenges, especially. I think that's where it begins. Um, but also an openness to listen to different ideas about the big national challenges as well. I think one of the challenges is simply having the leisure time to be involved. I've gone to colleges. I'm just, just talking about older folks who have to work two or three jobs just to make ends meet. I've been to colleges where and engaged uh, with students who come uh, very involved, very immersed, leaning in, uh, and then I find that they don't have a home. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, yes, the, the degree to which the realities of, you know, early 21st century American life are 
present on our campuses can't be overstated. So there's been uh, a lot of good research, um, some of it led by uh, Sarah Goldrick Rabb, who was uh, at the University of Wisconsin and is now at Temple University, on just what you're talking about, the levels of homelessness and food insecurity faced by college students. Uh, these are realities in our country and they show up on our campuses. And it's true. How can we expect uh, students to, you know, who are essentially just trying to support themselves, survive some, in some cases, support a family uh, and do their academic work to do something else. One of the things that I really tried to do at Rutgers Camden was, so we had a, um, an overwhelmingly commuter student population, right. a, a great number of whom uh, were responsible for family members, either parents or siblings, or in many cases, children of their own. Nearly all of them had jobs off campus or on campus. And one of the things that I really focused on was the way I thought about it was we couldn't make community and civic engagement a third thing for the students. It had to fit into either credit-bearing academic courses or paid experiences or both. So we worked hard to build out service and civic learning opportunities. We called them at, at Rutgers Camden engaged civic learning. We worked hard to take work-study funds uh, for student employment and ensure that those jobs as much as possible were serving broader communities. So these weren't kind of you know, uh, campus jobs where students just kind of sat around. These were jobs where students were out working through Rutgers programs in schools or with young people, helping them understand how to apply for college uh, or working in early childhood settings. Uh, so there was a real kind of purpose to student employment. And, you know, it, it wasn't a perfect uh, solution. You couldn't make it happen all the time. And of course, many of the students who are facing those kinds of challenges uh, themselves are the ones who are most motivated to be part of efforts to make positive change in their communities because they know yes. that they are not alone in facing these challenges. So the more we can create pathways for students, uh, you know, I really think we're we're helping them to kind of make their worlds make sense by letting them connect this educational effort to really trying to change the kinds of conditions that they themselves are facing. Mm -hmm. it, it, yes. So the Probably, it seems to me that the greatest compact we can make today is create the conditions that allow all of us to have that time and energy to devote ourselves to things that matter to us. Yeah, you know, I uh, the, the way I think about this, for me, I'm a, I'm a political theorist and a political person kind of in, in many ways, and I don't mean political in the sense of partisan. Uh, and so for me, you know, the question I always ask is, if we believe that nobody ought to have any greater say in the direction of a political community than anybody else, which to me is just the basic principle of democracy, that whoever you are, you ought to have equal say, then I think we just have to ask the question, what would it take to actually make that be the case? Mm -hmm. And I think it's clear that if you are homeless and you do not know where your next meal is coming from, uh, and you have not had the opportunity to receive a decent education, that the it is not realistic to say that you will have a meaningful opportunity to have an equal voice in the direction of your community or the country more broadly. And so for me, the compact uh, at the root of all of this is simply that commitment to each other, 
that none of us wants to rule somebody else and that all of us are committed to the idea that each of us ought to participate equally in governing. And again, once you make that commitment, then you commit yourself to asking these questions about what are the conditions that will make that real and then to thinking about how collectively we make that happen. Can you tell me just a little bit about your story? What has inspired you over the years to to make this kind of commitment yourself year in and year out to to being part of and directing and steering programs that really do have potential to create a, a greater positive social good, public good? I have thought a lot about this. Um, I had, was very fortunate enough to have parents who were themselves, uh, and my mom still is, she's still alive, um, deeply committed to communities, both local and, and further afield. My father was a Holocaust refugee. Uh, he and his mother and sister escaped from Nazi Germany. His father did not make it out and did not survive. And my father, you know, found in the United States uh, something he just couldn't even imagine existed on earth, you know, a place where regardless of one's religious beliefs and practices, ethnicity, there was uh, opportunity to live as you chose to express your views. He was keenly aware, though, even from right when he arrived, that this was not true for African-Americans in the same way it was true for white Americans. And that disturbed him because, you know, suddenly he was experiencing this newfound freedom and equality and saw that it wasn't available to all. And that uh, really inflected his experience and his commitments once he was here. My mother, uh, you know, grew up uh, kind of as the civil rights movement was unfolding, I think was very deeply affected by it. She, uh, her career was, was focused on fair housing, so fighting discrimination on all sorts of dimensions, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, disability, age. Uh, so, you know, and they were very involved in environmental efforts and, uh, but also just in the community and in all kinds of ways. My father and mother both were, you know, leaders in the scouts uh, and uh, participated in, in a variety of, of groups. My father was always a, a pro bono attorney for one of the local volunteer fire companies. So they just set an example of active participation and of commitment to to full participation uh, in our communities. And so that really resonated with me. I, you know, chose to study political theory because I was drawn to these broader and deeper questions about how to make that real. And, you know, experienced right from the beginning in academia a kind of divide between my commitment to engagement and action in service of these goods and the kind of academic tendency to study them without acting. And so I think for me, you know, in my own teaching, I started to find ways to connect those things. And then I discovered that there is this broader movement uh, that I could learn from and join with to advance a, a different version of academic life that could connect ideas to action and then, you know, run that back through a filter of learning and, and create a kind of upward spiral. Mm -hmm. So not only do you come by this honestly, but it's, it's personal. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and I think at, at these moments when, um, when we are, you know, faced with tremendous conflict, 
within our own society and deep challenges. Uh, it's a, it's one of the things I really work hard on is not separating the personal, but trying to sort of channel it in ways that, that connect and include. I've one interesting thing. It turns out my brother who obviously has the same uh, parents and background has a, and, and, you know, if anything, a greater commitment to the public good than I do. He's a police officer. And so he, you know, puts himself physically on the line every day. He has radically different political views from mine. Oh, can I and relate to that? Is that right? Okay. Yeah. It's an interesting, you know, and it's a good thing, I think, to have somebody, you know, who you respect, who you know to be intelligent and thoughtful, but also who just sees things in a very different way. And so for me, you know, that's been uh, a, a useful learning experience uh, and continues to be one, even if sometimes it's challenging. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, th this work is, is definitely personal and it, uh, and finding ways to make that kind of resonate with what are my deepest values instead of what might sometimes be my initial instinct in a situation. That's one of the things I work on all the time. Dr. Andrew Seligson, president of Campus Compact, website at compact.org. Thank you so much for being on our Socrates Cafe podcast. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Compact Nation is produced by Nabal Mahdi at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, on behalf of Campus Compact and its network of 1,100 colleges and universities across the United States. To learn more about Campus Compact, check it out online at compact.org.